The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Alexander the Great didn't become a brilliant empire builder overnight. His talents were the product of his upbringing. An upbringing that, as Alex Rowland explores in his new book encompassed political assassinations, a dysfunctional relationship with his father, and the best martial training that money could buy in the ancient world. Here, in conversation with Spencer Mizzen, Alex shines a light on the formative years of one of the most extraordinary figures in history. Hi Alex, thanks for uh, joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. Alex, in your new book, The Young Alexander, you describe the formative years of one of history's towering figures, Alexander the Great. Now, historians, biographers, novelists and poets have been dissecting, discussing and debating Alexander's life for uh, more than two millennia now. So why did you decide to enter the fray? Why did you decide to write a book about this extraordinary individual? Well, yeah, you're right. Alexander is a, a towering figure in history and, um, you know, he has this awesome reputation Thousands of books and articles have been written about him. So, you know, what is there new to say? Well, I think there is something new to say because thanks to, to new archaeology uh, in his homeland, ancient Macedonia, which is today's northern Greece, we're really getting a new insight into the society that produced him. And, you know, it's my argument that Alexander you know, doesn't come from from nowhere. He's not born into a vacuum. He's an absolute product of a very particular time and place. And that place is 4th century BC Macedonia. So when you start to put the, you know, the, the, the strands of evidence, we don't know much about Alexander's early life and the historical record. But what we do have is a, a sort of skeleton that we can now start fleshing out with new detail from digs and epigraphic discoveries in Macedonia. And we can just get that sense of the society that produced him and why he was the sort of person that he was. Most of our listeners will, I guess, have at least a working knowledge of Alexander's achievements in adulthood. The, the, the fact that he established one of the the greatest empires in history, one that stretched from northern Greece across to Kashmir and down the Nile as far as modern Aswan. But they may not know a great deal about his life before he embarked on his remarkable wars of conquest. So I wonder if you just give us a, a few minute overview of his life before he became king. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Alexander's early life is, in my opinion, as equally as fascinating as his later life, really. And I think, um, yeah, it tends to be brushed over quite a lot because, you know, he did so much in Asia when he was, uh, you know, conquering the Persian Empire that people sort of rushed through his youth to get to that point. But actually, if we go back to, uh, you know, the stories that are primarily in, in Plutarch's life of Alexander, we begin to get a, a picture of, of this intensely competitive world that Alexander grew up in. So a brief summary of his early life goes something like this. He was born in, in 356 uh, BC in Pella, then the capital of ancient Macedon, which is today's northern Greece. Uh, his mother was uh, a princess, a Molossian princess from a neighbouring kingdom to the west. Uh, she could claim descent from Achilles, <laughs> among other people. His father was uh, well, one of the greatest Macedonian kings uh, uh, in history. You know, if it wasn't for Alexander, it would be Philip, Alexander's father, who would be called the Great. Um, he was, you know, a fantastic, charismatic leader and really uh, revolutionized the kingdom, brought it out of the Dark Ages. Philip was part of what is called the, the Argiad ruling clan, who could claim uh, Heracles among their ancestors. So you've got Heracles on one side, Achilles on the other. You know, Alexander had uh, some pretty uh, blue blood r- running in his veins there. So he was immensely privileged that he was born into the, to the royal household, you know, and given the, you know, the best medical care, he survived infancy, which, you know, a lot of children of that period didn't. Around about the age of seven, he uh, started his education. Uh, his uncle, Leonidas, oversaw his, his early education, which typically involved a lot of physical exercise, you know, horse riding, athletics, gymnastics, probably some early training in, in weaponry as well. And then the other side, which was, you know, the liberal skills, the, the reading to write, uh, a bit of arithmetic and also uh, learning a musical instrument. So, yeah, physical training and uh, liberal studies with the two sides of his, of his education. But it should always be borne in mind that, as I said before, this was an intensely competitive society that he grew up in. He was of royal blood, but there were other royal children. Uh, Philip actually married seven times uh, during his reign. So Olympias, very, very early on, I think, drummed into Alexander, you know, that need to take every single opportunity to, to, to prove himself, to be the best, like, like Achilles. And so it's no surprise that one of the most famous anecdotes of Alexander's youth is the taming of his uh, stallion Bucephalus, which happened around about the age of 11. And, and the story goes that no one else could could calm this uh, wild stallion down when it was taken out to be appraised by uh, by the royal court. And Alexander realised that the horse was shying at its own shadow and he pipes up and bets his father that he... Uh, over everyone else can succeed in in riding the horse. Philip takes the bet. Alexander turns the horse away from the sun, eliminating the shadow, and goes riding off uh, into the sunrise, as it were. And when he comes back, you know, Philip's apparently uh, supposed to have said, Alexander, find yourself a kingdom that is your equal. Macedonia is too small for you. And I think that that's such a great story because I think it encapsulates you know, first off, Alexander's consummate um, horse riding abilities from an early age, but also that 
willingness to take a risk on the large stage, that he had to stand out, really, and do something special, again, to be noticed in, in this sort of society. So I, I think that was an indicator for Philip that, that, that Alexander really was, out of all the people in the royal household, you know, uh, the most uh, likely heir. I think we tend to, to think of Philip as, you know, training Alexander to be, you know, the rightful heir, the next king that comes along. But but actually these Macedonian monarchs were were pretty selfish individuals a lot of the time. And I don't think they really thought beyond, you know, their own uh, lifetime. And Philip himself was having an exceptionally, uh, you know, rich and, and uh, you know, incredible uh, reign himself. Yeah, so on that, on that, Alex, that, that actually leads you to, to another of my questions. So like you said earlier, Philip is himself a major, a major figure in classical history. You know, a leader who really put Macedon on the map. But I mean, how would you describe his his relationship with, with Alexander? Well, Philip and Alexander's relationship is 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 it's quite difficult to reconstruct from the ancient sources. You know, a lot of the details that we'd love to have, you know, just aren't there. What we can say is that early on, when Alexander you know, had emerged as, as the most likely heir when he became regent age 16 and he joined Philip in, in battle at the age of 18. Their relationship was very, very good, I think. You know, Alexander was taking every opportunity to prove himself to his father. His father was, you know, re- rewarding him with uh, praise and, uh, you know, I think uh, was proud of him, really. And then there's this fallout that happens, this very dramatic argument um, that erupts, primarily because Philip takes a young Macedonian wife, uh, probably in 337 BC, and that seems to have upset the apple, apple card a little bit because Olympias, who by, who by that point was most prominent among the wives, primarily due to Alexander's position, and the introduction of a new Macedonian wife yeah, causes a lot of anxieties and, and jealousy to rear its head. Uh, and during the wedding feast between Philip and his new wife, Eurydice, the, the guardian of the bride, a guy called Attalus, stands up and makes this very ill-judged toast saying, you know, let's hope, Philip, that uh, uh, you have some legitimate children now, essentially saying that all the other children born to him with his otherwise were, were, were bastards or illegitimate. And that, of course, really rankles badly with Alexander. And he he stands up and throws a wine cup at Attalus. You know, a fight breaks out. And interestingly, Philip, uh, who tries to break them up, draws his sword uh, and aims at Alexander, not at Attalus, which, uh, you know, in front of the whole royal Macedonian court, uh, you know, such a dramatic and shattering event. And, and Alexander goes into self-imposed exile after that, really. And the two are only reconciled with great, great difficulty by, by a friend of the family, you know, and from Philip's point of view, Alexander would have been a very, very dangerous rival. You know, a young adult. He had his own followers at court. He apparently went over to the Illyrians, the inveterate sort of enemies of Macedon. So with Philip planning, you know, new conquests in the east, it was unwise to leave Alexander out in the cold. So he brings Alexander back into the fold. And, you know, on the eve of the Persian campaign, you know, Philip is assassinated in another, you know, incredible event. Maybe we'll talk about it a bit, a bit later. But um, so Alexander is reconciled with his father when he, be- you know, when Philip dies and is well placed to become king. But, you know, in, in those three three short years leading up to that murder, I mean, their their relationship was really up one minute and down the next. It was uh, pretty, pretty dramatic stuff. And, and that's why it's such an interesting relationship and try to understand it, you know, is, is absolutely fundamental to, to Alexander's life and understanding the man, really. 
What role does uh, Olympias play in Alexander's formative years? I mean, she was quite a character, wasn't she? Yeah, I mean, uh, Olympias, uh, another great figure, really, from history. You know, this strong woman, uh, you know, she really, I think, impressed upon Alexander from a very early age, you know, that need to to stand out, to be the best, partly because, you know, her own status in the royal household, you know, depended on on, on Alexander. See, she seems to have been, you know, an ambitious and highly in- intelligent, politically astute woman. Again, a lot of the sources that we have to to reconstruct her life, uh, you know, have their problems because most of them were written by middle-aged men, basically from outside of Macedonia, who had, you know, sort of uh, their own opinions of these things. But, but I, I certainly see her as a as a force to be reckoned with. And I think behind the scenes, she had her own uh, friendships, her own alliances. You know, she tried to protect Alexander again. You know, pushing to be the best that he could be. She had a a murderous streak, I, I would say. As well, you know, she certainly, people she didn't get on with, uh, you know, she sort of nudged Alexander and said, can you get rid of this person for me? And Alexander, according to one source, say, you know, just because you don't like someone, there's no reason just to kill them. Uh, yeah. And another time, you know, he, he says uh, she's charging a high rent for, for nine months lodging in the womb. But there's no <laughs> there's no doubt that um, they had a very special relationship. I mean, she's one of the, the few people that Alexander could could trust completely, I think. And, you know, and she is you know, one of these first great powerful women in antiquity, you know, who's who's part of this tradition, uh, which carries on into the Hellenistic period and, of course, ends with, with Cleopatra of Egypt. Just remarkable women, really. As you've alluded to a couple of times already, a, a huge challenge of anybody writing a history of Alexander the Great is disentangling myth from fact. How do you go about do that? Is it even possible? Yeah, no, it's, it's a very good question. You know, the sources are complex when it comes to Alexander. Uh, and, you know, there, there's a reason that, that students um, in their undergraduate uh, courses for ancient history study Alexander the Great because he is a great example of the complexities of, of historiography, really. Uh, but scholars have done a great job in in tracing basically the original works that, that all the surviving sources that we have are based upon. I, I should say that those surviving sources are, you know, their earliest, but written 300 years after Alexander's death. But they are based on, on earlier accounts. And, you know, actually, I think we are quite lucky to have, you know, as much information as we do. And, and that's enabled people to, you know, compare and contrast to, to base it against other evidence like epigraphic and, and archaeological evidence. And I think bringing all these things together, we can start to sift the, the truth from the, the the fiction really, but also a lot of the stories to do with Alexander's uh, life are, are, are anecdotal really, and they they appear in, in in numerous forms in different authors. But there's always quite interesting information that you can take away from it. You know, for example, you know the stories of him uh, studying music, for instance. We have stories of, of him debating with his music teacher, and whether that debate took place is not really known, but it tells us that he did study music. So taking these little bits of fact and then combining it with other contemporary evidence that we have from various Athenians that visited the Macedonian court and basically provides, you know, a very good contemporary sounding board for a lot of the grander political events that were taking place. So, yeah, it is it is, a, it is a, a struggle to get to the truth of it all because Alexander's life is mythic in a way, and it did become legend very quickly after he died. But 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 I I think there there is you know, a lot that we can take away from the sources. And we always have to be 
uh, humble in our presentations of the past, I guess, uh, and do a lot of caveats with it. But, you know, I, I think in doing that, we, we do get closer to reconstructing a very important part of Alexander's life. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. He grew up in a world where his father could have died at any point. Suddenly, before he knew anything, someone else might have been on the throne. The first thing that they would do, send the assassins down the hallway to kill Alexander. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. On a related note, at the, at the beginning of the book, you relate this wonderful anecdote of the archaeologist Manolis Andronicus entering the tomb of, of Philip in 1977 and kind of discovering, a, I think it's a figurine of Alexander frozen in time, not as Alexander the Great, but as Alexander when he was a prince. How much has archaeology, as opposed to written sources, transformed our understanding of Alexander over the recent decades? When I first visited uh, Northern Greece in, in 2014, I think it was, I'd studied Alexander before. I knew a little bit about his youth, you know, and read a lot of later narratives on Alexander, which are there, you know, in many fantastic uh, recent books as well. But going there and just seeing the the richness of the archaeology, the the landscapes that Alexander would have known, this you know, fantastic material record that is emerging from the soil of northern Greece. It was just remarkable, really. And I was really uh, bowled over by it. The, the archaeological study of, of, of northern Greece, of ancient Macedonia, is quite a recent event. And, and Manolis Andronicus's discoveries of the royal tombs in, in 1977 really was the kickstarter uh, for that. But for me, it was just the fact that that now we have a new body of evidence is telling something that is not in the sources. You know, that these, these moments are being interpreted by archaeological findings. You know, they're literally coming out of the ground, you know, as we speak. And it is putting everything we knew about Alexander into a different sort of context. And with the discovery of Philip's uh, a, a tomb, you know, the remarkable thing is that, you know, we can start to reconstruct elements of Philip's funeral, which was a very, very important moment in Alexander's life because, uh, you know, the funeral of, of, of a predecessor was really bound up with the, the exchanging of power. You tend to think of kingship as you designated heir, the previous king dies, the prince becomes king and, and, and that's fine. But, but actually it was a lot more fluid than that. It was all about having to, to prove yourself, to, to have enough support. There were constant competitors and people in the shadows you know what no wonder alexander was so paranoid the entire time was it uncertain then that he would succeed his father it wasn't a given then that he he'd, he'd become king following philip's death 
Well, no, I don't think it was a given. I mean, Philip had clearly, I think, designated him as as his heir. He'd associated him with royal power. And there seems to be some precedent uh, with that in the uh, Macedonian royal household of the past. But at the end of the day, we know that there was an older cousin of Alexander's who for for many years might have been seen as a more likely successor, Amintas, who was the son of a previous Macedonian king. We also know that because of Philip's you know, state-building activities, an integration of new and powerful families within the, the kingdom, that there were other people with their own royal lineage, separate royal lineage, that could have easily attempted uh, to prize power from Alexander. And, and that's why when he does become king, there is this a sort of slew of, of deaths and killings where he has to basically kill all his competitors. So uh, Philip had certainly made him or associated him with royal power. Alexander, I think, felt, you know, he was the only acceptable choice. He had enough support at that time, primarily from uh, one of Philip's uh, great companions in a statesman called uh, Antipatros, Antipater, who seems to be the agent of power. He supported Alexander. But, you know, anything can happen in those weeks and months following an accession. And I don't think Alexander's you know, reign, reign as king was ever really successful until he had established himself you know, after the first couple of years of, of successful reign. And, and at this point, do we or can we in any way get a sense of how lofty Alexander's ambitions were at this time when he succeeded to the throne? Do you think he had it in his mind that he would be able to create this, this, this great empire? Yeah, it's just one of the great debates when it comes to Alexander. What was his aim when he went across to Persia in 334 BC? Was he just trying to win back the Greek cities of Asia Minor? Was he trying to force a confrontation with the great king? Did he have, you know, a new empire, a new Macedonian empire in the East in mind? It's, it's one of the great debating points. I mean, going back to, to, to Philip's aims, which are so equally uh, difficult to understand. So, you know, the Grand Persian expedition was Philip's plan, really, primarily as a means of, I, I think, to, to bind, you know, the Greeks that he was now the overlord of, you know, together in a, a new campaign. Under his leadership, they were revenging ancient wrongs against the Persians. You know, these were ambitious people. Um, I think there might have been, uh, you know, a case of let's just see how we get along when we get over there. But there's no reason to think that, you know, with a very, very good professional army and, you know, the records of Greek armies in the past against the Persians, that Philip wasn't thinking of a big showdown with the with the king and conquering an entire Persian empire. I wouldn't be surprised. I think we tend to put limits on people's ambitions in the past. I, I don't think we should do that. I mean, I think the, these people, they had all the tools at their disposal. Why not go big or go home, as they say? And, uh, and I think Alexander, when he came to the throne, he would have been privy to some of those conversations that Philip was having with his with his friends. He would have known Philip's ambitions. He would have really wanted to go that one step further because, like I said, you know his relationship with Philip was very difficult uh, when they had a falling out. You know, I think you know it really made for this this ultra competitiveness between the two. And Alexander always had Philip on his shoulder and I think wanted always to go and do more than his father to be the better king, the more remembered personality. And it's incredible that he managed to do that really. So yeah, I, I think maybe when he went over to, to, to Persia, he was just going to see how, how, it, how it went. But in the back of his mind, he might've been thinking, let's go for broke, try and conquer the whole thing. He probably wasn't thinking about then how you rule an empire of that size. 
how you begin to look at things pragmatically. But uh, you know, and that's why I think we see a, you know a, you know a shift in in policy with Alexander after you know the great king is finally defeated. But yeah, I, I don't I don't think he had any limit limit on his ambition when he when he went over there. No, he's he's obviously remembered as one of the most brilliant, most innovative military leaders, tacticians in history. Where would he have learned these martial skills? Alexander's obviously growing up against the background of the Macedonian course, and and these were you know very martial people. This was a warrior society. In many ways, they still had this you know sort of Bronze Age uh, mentalities. It was always about honor and bravery and winning fame for your achievements. Really, he was part of this this vast circle of of, of aristocracy that that were was highly competitive, you know, and people learned to to ride horses to get training in arms very very early on. That training intensified uh, into their adolescence, and certainly when it comes to Alexander, uh, we know that he was tutored by by the great uh, brain that was Aristotle. Um, for three years. And we tend to forget that at the same time, his military training would have been a massive part of his time during that phase of his education. Maybe Aristotle's lessons, you know, only took up a couple of hours of the day. The rest of the time, it was just riding. It was training in arms. It was, you know, physically preparing your body uh, for the rigours of, of campaign life, really. So by the time they start entering the army, either in the cavalry or or as um, advanced foot soldiers, you know, they already have the the necessary skills. And then, you know, they're really learning about the coordination of the army, the discipline in the army in those first couple of years. So we know that Alexander becomes regent at 16 and he's off on campaign at age of 16, which is incredible from our point of view. But from the Macedonian point of view, you know, like I said, these were tough military people. They're learning to ride before, before they could walk. War is just an endemic part of their society. So, you know, bloodshed, sharing stories of, of courage, of martial prowess. You're growing up with that, really. And um, from the year dot, Alexander is learning how to kill people, essentially. Uh, and it's why he's so good at it later on, because, you know, with Macedonia and with Philip's building of the army, it's really becoming a, a professionalised outfit and, and their mentality sort of mirrors that, really. You mentioned Aristotle there. Would Alexander have grown up with a knowledge of the great Homeric figures? And would he have, in some way, wanted to replicate what they'd achieved, even if what they'd achieved was, you know, legendary? Yeah, so so Homer is obviously you know known as the educator of Greece. I mean, he's the the voice from the past that is is present in in all of the the youngsters' formative years, really. And Alexander obviously had a special link to the epics because he can claim descent from uh, from Achilles through through his mother's line. And so we know that the elite education, learning to read, learning to write went hand in hand with introduction to the the Homeric epics, really. And we know that Alexander, like a lot of his contemporaries, would have been able to recite, you know, huge swathes of of Homer. We know from his later life when he's drinking and feasting with his friends, you know, they're debating some of the, the topics that Homer discusses. And like I said before, you know, the world of of Homer is not that dissimilar to to that of, of 4th century BC Macedonia, really. So we straight away have these stories, these these epics, these great uh, legends, you know, were always there with Alexander from, from the very beginning, uh, not only through studying the actual text that came with loads of 
you know, fantastic lessons on morality and how to act and all these types of things, but also through this really vibrant oral culture, through these recitals that were given by by Homeric bards, essentially. You know, and, and we forget that this was a time before TV and mass entertainment and things. So, you know, knowing Homeric epics, knowing the great works of the the playwrights of Athens. For, for Alexander, they were immensely important pieces of literature. Not only were they entertainment for their own good, but also, you know, they provided a, a moral template and also aspired him to, to become as famous as people like uh, Achilles. You know, I think an obsession with reputation and an obsession with, with equaling those deeds of the heroes from the past was born in Alexander from a very, very early age. And I think it explains a lot about his later career. And And Plutarch tells us that, you know, he valued his reputation more than he did his crown. And I think that that tells you everything you need to know about Alexander, really. There's been a lot of speculation about Alexander's sexuality over the centuries. Did, did your research into his formative years reveal anything about his love life? Yeah, so it's quite interesting. I mean, again, it goes back to, you know, the, the the sources that we have, we don't have any sources of the Macedonians describing their own society, essentially. So a lot of the details come from hostile uh, accounts, and especially when it comes to their, their sexuality. We have a, a fourth century uh, source, a guy called Theopompus, who basically, you know, labels, you know, the Macedonian court as being a very lurid place. Men of any age sleeping together with each, with each other, more courtesans than companions, he says. You know, actually, we don't know too much about whether the Macedonians were looser in their sexual morals than other places in Greece. We know that same-sex relationships were part of Greek education. They normally took place within very tightly regimented social constructions. And, you know, it was just part of life. You know, people slept with with men, had relationships with men, had relationships with women. You know, I think as soon as you came to adulthood, there was an expectation that you had to to father children to, to propagate the line, and that was your duty. From what we know of Alexander's relationships, we know that he had a very, very close relationship with a guy called Hephaestion, his closest companion. They're probably very similar in age. There's this great debate about whether it was sexual or not. I mean, I don't think it really matters. I think it probably was up to a certain point. But at the same time, you know, Alexander's life married three times and, and, and had children. So, it's very difficult, I think, from from where we are with one society, judging people by our 21st century outlook, because I think it was completely different. In terms like being gay or bisexual weren't really applicable to ancient Macedonian society, and I don't think they saw it in that way. So yeah, it's a difficult one to get to, but but it is important because Alexander's relationships were very fundamental to him. You know, there were very few people that he could trust completely, and Hephaestion was was one of them. But do you get the sense that because of the position he was in, he, he found it difficult to trust other people? I, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, he grew up in a world where his father could have died at any point. Suddenly, before he knew anything, someone else might have been on the throne. The first thing that they would do, send the assassins down the hallway to kill Alexander. Alexander's uncle, also called Alexander, was assassinated in a, in a ceremonial dance. We know that Philip was killed in front of Alexander, assassinated by another close companion of his father's. And that's going to have a huge impact. That's going to have a huge impact on your character, isn't it? Exactly. How can you not grow up in a world where you see 
people in power being killed uh, and knowing that you, if you don't have the ability to claim power, the position to claim power, the support to claim power, that you are going to be on the on the chopping block. And understandably, he was absolutely par- paranoid about about plots during his own life, you know, and probably rightly so, because they did occur. <laughs> I mean, so he was, uh, I think he was absolutely justified in that. It probably made him a little bit paranoid, but I'm sure that that probably be the case for anybody in that situation. That was Alex Rosen. The Young Alexander, The Making of Alexander the Great, is published by William Collins. You can find plenty more material on the ancient world on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.